You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Have you heard the term future steading? It's a phrase Jade Miles from Black Barn Farm uses to describe her way of life. She's a farmer who believes in eating local, growing your own produce where you can, and getting in touch with Mother Nature. Her book is called Future Steading, Practical Skills, Recipes and Rituals for a Simpler Life. It sounds pretty amazing, but as a city slicker, I must admit it also feels like something that's maybe a bit out of reach for me and mine. But Jade says you don't have to up sticks and move to the country to embrace the principles of future sitting. Jade joins me now. Hi, Jade. How are you? Hello. I'm just like you and I'm doing my best to get through a lockdown, but I'm well. (laughs) We are all still sane at the moment. Um, (laughs) How do you define future sitting? Uh, look, the way you just explained it is is pretty close, but I think the reason it was devised in the first place was because we were forever listening to people say, wow, the way you live is amazing. They would come to our workshops and our, our events and they'd say, I just wish I could do more of this, but I don't have land, so I can't. And it really made us realise that it actually wasn't about having sprawling acres. It was truly about the, the paradigm and the frame in which you um look at life and how you make your decisions and how you actively decide to interact with the outside world or with where your food comes from or with what your seasons are telling you to, to do inside and outside. And all of those things that made us realise that it was something that actually could be really, really accessible for absolutely everybody. Even if you're in a par- an apartment in the city, you know, a, a pot of mint on your kitchen table that you can pick from and have a a morning ritualistic cup of peppermint tea could in fact be yours if you just put your mind to it. But it's not just about growing your own food either. There's a whole series of um, principles that have been devised really so that I could put a bit of structure around my thinking so that I could feel really confident in saying that absolutely anybody can do this. Now that you've said that you don't have to be out in the country to embrace future setting, I actually would love to hear about where you live because your book is full of such beautiful pictures and I know you mentioned it it was kind of down to lovely light and a good photographer, but obviously as well you live there because you love it. So can you talk to me about your own farm? Yeah, yeah. So we are in northeast Victoria in a tiny little place called Stanley, which is a plateau just south of Beechworth, which more people are familiar with. And it's a traditional apple, pear and cherry growing region. Um, Our farm, Black Barn Farm, is new. So we're... um, We've only been here for six years and I say new because we're probably only halfway through our startup phase, which is kind of in contradiction with the way most people operate we're six years in and we've still got probably another four or five to go but trees take a really long time to graft and (laughs) nurture and grow and produce food so um, we also have berries so it will be open as pick your own for berries and fruit uh, all of the heritage and heirloom varieties for six months of the year where we also run workshops and school programs and upskill kids and upskill anyone wanting to know how to graft or make compost or wicking beds or you know all of those sorts of good wholesome things 
And um, you mentioned that you lived in the area in your early 20s. You now have your own family. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem like an unusual choice to be out in the in regional areas. It seems like many young people leave regional areas to go to the city. What was it about you and your partner that made you want to go there so young and stay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we landed back here just after we both turned 21 and we couldn't get out of the city fast enough. I don't know that I would have necessarily come to this patch because um, it's not where I'm from. I'm from Gippsland, but Uh, My husband's from up here and all of his family were here. And so he finished uni and said, righto, I'm out of here. I can't do the city life. So I'm heading back up the highway. So you can either join me or not. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) well, actually, we were surrounded by people in their 30s and 40s, but they were the minority. Actually, our neighbours were in their 60s, 70s and even 80s. So where we were based on the plateau in Stanley where all the old apple orchards were they were all very close to retiring. And since then, which, you know, that was 23 or four years ago, they have all, bar a couple, a very small handful, um, have pretty well retired. And so there's the good side of that is that there's, you know, lots of young, vibrant, good-thinking people moving in. But the downside of that is that we're now surrounded by lifestyles rather than agricultural um, pursuits. So you followed your husband back to the country and you yourself grew up in Gippsland, he grew up in the country. Did you always know you would come back to living a farm life? Categorically always. So I did all of my high school years and uni years in Melbourne because mum had moved to Melbourne. But I had a really, really strong set of foundations as a kid. We grew all our own food. My parents were full-blown permies and we did lots and lots of trading and community was a massive part of our existence. We weren't homeschooled but we had pretty alternative thinking folks, my dad in particular, so I always knew we would come back to the bush. So at 21 it did feel like a fairly big leap of faith to be moving to a completely unknown area where everyone was so much older than me but I definitely knew I would always come back. So moving forward a little bit, you and your family now, you and your kids and your husband lived through those horrific fires at the start of 2020. Mm. Can you talk to me about how, about the kind of impact that had on your thinking and and how you were at that time? Um, 2020 was not actually the first set of fires we had lived through. We had been through three sets of campaign fires over the 15 years prior to that and my husband is he works for DELP so he's non-substantive role he has a fire role and so he's fighting fires or doing mapping or post-fire hydrogeology work so fires are a really big part of our life and you know whenever there are campaign fires uh, they have a massive impact because I'm left flying solo for sometimes months and months on end with kids and now farm without a husband because he's doing back-to-back 16-hour days in the field and so it's a really big part of our life but in 2020 it was probably the first time I saw that there was this galvanizing of all of our community not just regional Australia who was genuinely facing the flames but actually those who were being impacted by smoke and who were being bombarded with media messaging about it and it it felt like for the first time ever people were saying this has got to change and this you know someone has to change this 
And I, it was fantastic to see the galvanisation, but it was frustrating to see the finger being pointed at whoever they were that were supposed to be making a difference. And I know that we looked to our leaders for support and it wasn't there. It just wasn't there for so many of our communities that were impacted last year. But what it made me think was this is for us. Every single one of us can actually make a difference. And now's our chance. Now's our chance to take this rising sense from the deep parts of our gut and really reconnect with our primal reason to exist. And that as humans is so much more than consumption and disconnection from the natural world and, you know, fear of missing out and screens and this paced existence that is beyond our non-mechanised humanity. It's time for us to acknowledge that we are not machines but that actually we, we are primal beings and we need to work out what it is we need in order to really thrive. And it's not about pointing the finger and saying the government needs to put more money behind this. And maybe that's part of it too because it all tears. We need change. But that's really what galvanised me to say, okay, I know I've got a heap of these skills that people are now desiring because we then launched straight into COVID and, of course, people were locked down and said, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to reconnect with being at home. I don't know how to find my rhythm. I don't know how to find a state of flow while we're all under one roof. It was really confronting and so many people, especially if you're in Victoria listening, we're going through that again and New South Wales. It's, it's really about us saying, okay, we as individuals and as communities, we've got this. And in order to have this and feel confident with that statement, we need to upskill. And so I thought it was time to feed into that galvanised state of our culture and share skills. So let's talk about some of those seven principles of future setting that you outline in your book Mm -hmm. and um, I won't go through all of them because Mm -hmm. as I like to say to people that's why you go and get the book (laughs) and um, (laughs) but um, there were a couple that I am particularly interested in talk to me about the principle of meeting mother nature yeah meeting mother nature is something that I take for granted but I sadly feel really since the beginning of industrial times in fact prior to that the beginning of agriculture and domestication we've really started to separate ourselves as humans from the natural world there are so many cultures in the world who don't even have words for the word nature because it isn't separate to us you know our own indigenous people have such a deep deep understanding of the impact of the natural world on them and they are just one part of it we are not in control of it we are not separate to it Um, we shouldn't be trying to curate and control it it's just that we are part of it and really understanding that is is really important and it and it brings this infinite potential of a connected existence that perhaps is eluding us in our paced western world And I think if you really take the time, I interviewed someone a couple of days ago who said, when I'm really overwhelmed by the whole state of the world, I find a patch of green and it might just be a nature strip. I look anywhere I can for green and I sit and I'm really still and I breathe deeply and I actively acknowledge all of the variations in green. And it is such a magic way of just bringing me back to centre. And it's biophilia at play, even in an urban setting. 
And I thought, yeah, it's just the little tiny simple things. We don't have to have national parks on our back doorstep in order to really connect with it. And the other thing that I love to talk about and think about is ritual. Mm. Why is ritual one of the seven principles of future setting? This is my favourite of all of them (laughs) because I think it's the one that uh, has the ability to be turned into something that really sings for all of us as individuals. And for me, ritual is the pattern, the beautiful, slow pattern of the day where I, if it's in the middle of winter, I lift the Rayburn lid and I pop the kettle on to boil while it's still quiet and the whole house is waking up and I have my morning cup of tea with whatever fresh herbs I pick as the world wakes up outside. And that can be really something simple that you do every day or you know, we also do um, seasonal rituals. So in the guts of winter when it's freezing cold and we haven't seen people for a really long time, we pull all of our clan together and we celebrate with a winter solstice and a great big bonfire and we chant and we cheer and we drink cider and the kids run around in the dark dressed up as ghouls and it's the most <laughs> incredible, <laughs> incredible night. We host a wassail every year and it's fantastic. It doesn't have to be that big though. You know, it could be everybody in your street coming together or doing a, a, a light parade where you all make some beautiful uh, lanterns and then and walk up and down your street and greet each other. It could be really simple, but it's just those patterns and rhythms and, and rites of passages that I think we're missing. And, and I think it's those rituals that hold us in times of uncertainty. I know I, I mentioned before that you talked about, in the book about how um, it's not about what you can Instagram and hmm. these beautiful idyllic bucolic pictures, um, which I do find kind of prevail when we're talking about that divide between city and country mm-hmm. and and this yearning to go back to something simpler. But I think you're also very real in your book about what it's like to live on a farm, not only with the fires, but also with financial uncertainty. Mm. And, of course, the principles that you talk about and the reason you're committed to it is because that comes out on top. But it isn't necessarily an easy life, is it? Oh, no. (laughs) No, it is not easy. And I'm glad that you say that that comes through in the book because it was a really hard balance. Every time I'd write a chapter, my mother, who was pre-reading it for me, would say, oh, Christ, no one is ever going to adapt to future studying principles. (laughs) No, look, it's not easy, but easy generally correlates with things like convenience and comfort. It is neither of those things. And it is not the simple life either, I think, um, it is a really long way from the simple life. There's a huge amount of sacrifice because you you do pair right back. So you have to really define, especially as a family, it can't just be led by the parents or the adults, what your enough is. And for us, we've really comfortably come to the conclusion that enough is health. I've been unhealthy for the last few years. I just, I've had an autoimmune issue that I just can't get on top of. And so it's really brought home that health is really, really vital. Um, A beautiful, open, connected and committed relationship with everybody in in your household. And simple things like um, swimming in our dam or watching the stars at night or cloud watching with our backs on the ground in in crunchy summer grass. They for us are our rewards because leaving the farm is hard and 
um, finding time to be away from the jobs is nearly impossible. So we have to snatch moments when we can. So we rarely eat out. And when we do have special food treats, it's usually picnics in the paddock or, you know, a, a, a picnic by a river somewhere. But they have to be enough. So we have to be happy with what our enough is because um, life is really physical, really tiring, really dirty, really <laughs> unglamorous. <laughs> and, you know, we've, we've got three kids and so the vision that we've created, which has now been 15 years in the making, um, wasn't around. they weren't around when we first cooked the concept up and so we now have to retrofit them to make sure that it works for them as well. We're not in town and we don't get in our car unnecessarily so we, we don't scoot into town very often and it means the kids either have to ride their bikes to see mates or they don't see mates or we have to convince someone else to bring their kids to us or, you know, our holidays for years now have been in a tent up at our top dam and... <laughs> As, as Spartan as that sounds, actually, it is blissful. And I don't have to organise a house sitter or a farm sitter or the animals. Or So it's not, it's not simple to answer your question and it's not easy. But I have to say I wouldn't change it for the world. I have lunch with my husband every single day with food that we've grown, either picked fresh from the veggie garden or out of our winter stores of all the preserved foods that I've been doing for years and years now. You know, we know where all of our food comes from. It feels kind of virtuous. Your seven principles and essentially this book did come out of um, seeing how people responded to the fires in 2020 and seemed to really want to make a change because they could tangibly see and feel what climate change was doing to the world. So given that the principles in your book do seem in some ways philosophical, whether it's about ritual or um, small, if it's about, you know, having your own little plant of mint. Um, how do these principles help people on an individual level combat climate change? I think in short, it's just time to start exercising our custodial responsibility for the world that we live in now, to actively tap out of consumerism, to celebrate local to cultivate connections and to actively seek slow I think government has always been led by its people and so until we start actively showing them that we mean business and that we are quite serious and we're serious enough to change our expectations of what our own lives look like which means curbing some of that excess and curbing some of the expectation and and truly establishing what our genuine enough needs to look like we have excess we don't need it um, or rather some don't need it and it needs to be more well shared and more well spread and governments will respond to that they always have and and I often it's not for me to be writing letters to government and it's not for me to be going to climate rallies but it is for some and that's where their skill set and their desire lies and so the thing with future steading is that None of these things are just philosophical. Every single one of them has the ability to just create a really gentle framework for us to make all of our daily decisions through and to really think about uh, where we sit in terms of our own responsibilities in the middle of all of that. What I do know with Future Steading with our pod is that where people may have been crippled uh, with anxiety, eco-anxiety, they felt solace and they felt a soothing and nourishment from the act of doing 
And so it doesn't really matter what you do and it doesn't matter how you do it and it doesn't matter when you do it, but you've got to do it in a way that works for you so that it's sustainable and so that other people can gently come along with you and so that there's joy in it because if it's earnest and hard all the time, not, there's no joy. So there's this desire for hope all the time and we have this ability to in a slippery way fall down to a place of hopium let's avoid hopium and let's actually focus on a radical sense of hope that truly looks the real issues in the face acknowledges them and actively does things to combat them jade that's the perfect place to end this interview thank you so much for speaking with us today no worries that's Jade Miles from Black Barn Farm, an author of Future Steading, Practical Skills, Recipes and Rituals for a Simpler Life. For links on where to find the book, check out the notes in this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.